Welcome to Startup Hacks, a We Global Studios podcast. We explore the stories and secret strategies that women entrepreneurs use to save time and money when bootstrapping and building their businesses. I'm your host, Fernanda Carapina, and today I'm so excited to welcome Francois Girard. Francois is the founder and CEO of Feminism Makes Us Smarter, a communications platform where she promotes the work of feminist activists from around the world and engages in thoughtful and thought-provoking conversations about the importance and impact of feminism and feminist movements. She recently concluded eight years as president of the International Women's Health Coalition. Girard is a lawyer by training, an author, advocate, an expert on women's health, human rights, sexuality, HIV, and AIDS, and feminist movements. For over 20 years, she's advocated for women's rights and gender justice in close partnership with feminist activists from all over the world. Her advocacy and writing have focused on women's and girls' bodily autonomy, and their sexual and reproductive health and rights, including abortion rights. She's been quoted by the Washington Post, BBC Radio, NPR, Al Jazeera, Voice of America, The Guardian, Boston Globe, Associated Press, The New Yorker, and The Nation, among others. Welcome, Francois. It's great to have you on the show. Hello, Fernanda. It's such a pleasure to be with you. Well, this is such a treat, and it's been a long time coming. I've been wanting to get you on the show for a while, ever since we've met. So I'm really glad that we finally had an opportunity to connect and uh, to have you um, speak on our podcast. So I was wondering if you might set the stage a little bit for our listeners and give us a little bit about your personal background, where you grew up, how you got started as a professional young woman. Yes, I, uh, I'm from Canada, from Quebec City, in fact, the lovely city that uh, Quebec City is. And uh, I grew up in a middle-class neighborhood, very concerned from an early age about issues of justice and human rights, and also of women's rights. You know, in Quebec, at that time, our grandmothers were, you know, women who'd had 10 to 12 children. You know, that's my experience. And from an early age, I observed that having that many children uh, really prevented you from from holding a job outside the home, pretty much, and and also from controlling your economic situation. So you were often very trapped uh, in the marriage. And um, I decided that I wanted to work on that, ensuring women's freedom, reproductive freedom, their control over their bodies, sexuality, and, and their economic independence as a result. So those were early on some of my my passions. And then over time, you know, I became a lawyer so that I could work on these issues from a professional perspective. And I also uh, studied political science, international relations. I studied at McGill University and got a master's degree in uh, Soviet politics, as it was then known. And I became an expert in Eastern Europe. So that set the stage for my moving to New York City 28 years ago and starting to work on issues of human rights, Eastern Europe, you know, the the democracy movement in Eastern Europe after the fall of the Soviet Union. And after that, from there on, women's rights in the region and then globally. And that's what I'm still doing today. Wow. You know, it's so funny that I have actually never thought about the issue that you just raised uh, regarding your grandmother. Because my um, 
grandmother was one of 12 siblings also. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, um, it's true. I mean, obviously when you have that many children, I mean, that's, that's that, that's pretty much your full-time job. Yeah. <laughs> times, times 10, right? Yes. So as you were growing up and, and you started to really focus on, on these issues, and then you went to college and you became a professional and practiced law, did you find that there were differences within, for example, Canada, Soviet Union, United States that were really dramatic shifts in kind of point of view and opportunities for women? Or did you feel that there was kind of a, a common thread country to country? There are both differences and common threads. You know, at the time, for example, when I was working um, on Soviet issues, the Soviet Union had a very different approach to reproductive freedom. Uh, abortion was legal in the Soviet Union and women typically had a number of abortions because they didn't have access to contraception. And women had few children and typically worked right outside the mm -hmm. home and, and the Soviet Union set up a whole system of creches and nurseries for, for kids. Uh, so a very different system. But uh, if you looked at the, the Politburo, you know, in the Soviet Union, it was men, right? And who was uh, the secretary general of the Communist Party? It was a man, and men were in charge. And women in the so in Soviet times faced a lot of violence at home, and you know, personal violence in society because patriarchy was still reigned there. You know, despite the fact that they were working outside the home and they didn't have the twelve kids. So the common thread that I found was that patriarchal forces are active and they, it plays out in different ways in different places, but to keep women down, to keep women from having true power, and that's rooted in gender norms, you know, the roles of women in the family and in society, and that's something that feminism uh, has always tackled, you know, as seen as the, the source of the issues and has wanted to change so that women could be free to do whatever it they wanted and, and to express their, their true genius. And did you feel that uh, there was a big difference between the experience that women were having in the Soviet Union versus, for example, or in Canada? Yes, of course. I mean, in, you know, of course, the systems were so different. And of course, in Canada, we had, you know, freedom of speech and freedom of movement, freedom of association, things that were not uh, possible in the Soviet Union in the same way, right? But for a lot of women in Canada and in Quebec at the time, there wasn't that much support for them to work outside the home. My mother was reminding me that she couldn't have a credit card in her own name until the, the 70s in, in mm -hmm. Quebec. She, you know, the society appeared nominally freer for women. There was a lot of lack of freedom uh, in the marriage arrangements or in the legal status that women had until quite recently. I mean, I, I, our mothers experienced this, not being able to take a loan in her name, or my mother was forced to stop working as a school teacher when she got married, because when she became married, it was expected that you would immediately have children and you, you were asked to leave your teaching position. So, you know, and mm -hmm. she was a primary school teacher. And so that wasn't what was going on in the Soviet Union, but there were you know, there are obviously other advantages, many advantages to being in a democracy, right? And I'm mm -hmm. not advocating for the lack of democracy as the solution to women's rights. But you could just see how different societies dealt with these issues. But ultimately, at some point, women hit the glass ceiling. At some point, women 
realized that they weren't going to be able to have control over certain aspects of their lives. And that's what feminism wants to put an end to. We want women to have the, free, the full freedoms that they deserve and the ability to realize their potential on any dimension. And of course, that requires control over their bodies and sexuality, which is often at the root, the key way in which women are, are kept on. So let's talk a, a little bit about the word feminism, yes. which you know we, you and I have talked about this privately, and I think it's it's so interesting to kind of explore that word, which for some is a real hot button. So I'm wondering if if you could share how you would describe feminism and what feminism means to you, and 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 perhaps kind of globally to women. Well. For me, feminism is uh, putting an end to the sexist of oppression of women uh, because they're women, right? Mm -hmm. uh, keeping them down just because they're women or uh, subjecting them to violence or, or, or to being killed just because they're women. Uh, so that's definitely the, the, the overarching plan, you know, for feminism. Mm -hmm. But of course, in there, there's all kinds of different aspects of it that are worth exploring. As you can tell, my great passion has been reproductive justice, you know, control over our bodies, our fertility, our ability to uh, say no to sex or say yes to the sex we want. Those are pretty foundational for women. But I'm also very interested in issues of economic justice, women being able to access uh, jobs, uh, any kind of jobs and being in leadership in, in sectors where they haven't been, for example, in healthcare. We women make the overwhelming majority of healthcare workers pretty much everywhere around the world. Yet, when you look at the leadership of health sectors, of hospitals, of health systems, typically men are in charge. And that's true just about everywhere. So how do we change that? How do we ensure that women who are on the front lines of healthcare, and we've seen that through the COVID pandemic, also have the power to make decisions about the way uh, healthcare will be administered and, and delivered. So that's those are some of the issues that I'm interested in. And of course, I think we're looking more and more to at the role of feminist movements in all of this and the role that women, especially young women, can play in, in these movements. And I mean, if you look at the climate justice movement currently, you see so many young women at the head of it. You know, Greta Thunberg is one of them, but there's many mm -hmm. others. And there's something about young girls and young women paying attention to the environment, paying attention to the world we live in and wanting something better and, and being mobilized in ways that I, I find truly inspiring. And so I, I also really want to point at the role of feminist movements and especially young feminists on a range of issues and, and finding ways uh, to ensure that they're supported, which is what I'm trying to do with feminism makes us smarter, you know, shining a light on the work of incredible feminists around the world and making sure that their, their work is lifted and elevated and, and known. Yes, yes, that's beautiful. I want to dig into the work that you're doing in a moment. I wanted to just jump back to what you just said about healthcare. I myself have been pretty active in the healthcare space for over 20 years through a local hospital here in Los Angeles. But one of the things that I didn't realize, and I don't know if a lot of people do realize, is that a lot of the medical research that is underway is typically focused on a male 
population. Yes. And a lot of treatments are then crafted to address ailments based on male data. So for example, Mm -hmm. heart disease, Mm -hmm. which affects men and women very differently, a lot of the information that's been put out in terms of symptoms and things of that nature are really symptoms that men would have and not necessarily what a woman would have when she's having a heart attack. And a lot of heads of departments who happen to be women have been fighting for more female concentrated research because a woman's body and a man's body is very different. Absolutely. I mean, it's pretty shocking to realize that medical research has been carried out on this typical man, you know, a white man, by the way, middle-aged white man, um, and that women have not had the benefit of, of that medical research so that when a drug is approved, honestly, they don't know how it's going to work in women because they've right. not tested it in women. And some of the reasons for that date back to this notion that women's bodies are unpredictable, you know, they're hormonal, they're different. And also the fear of, you know, interfering with pregnancy, even though you may be talking to women who can guarantee to you that they're not pregnant and would like to participate in the clinical trials for the drug. Basically, the female body and and women don't feature in that. And it, it, it goes beyond that to all kinds of other things in healthcare. For example, What I didn't realize until, you know, a few years ago is that the medical equipment, the PPE, the personal protective equipment that uh, hospitals buy is typically geared towards the male body, even Mm -hmm. though 70% of healthcare workers are women. And, you know, male bodies tend to be more standard than, than women's bodies, more generic, if you want. We all know this from having tried when we were younger to buy a pair of jeans, right? And so often women, uh, healthcare workers tell us that the, the equipment doesn't fit them, it's too long, it's, it doesn't go around their breasts or, you know, their, their waist or, or their hips, uh, that the masks are too big for their faces, you know, and that in the COVID pandemic became really problematic. And that's why you saw these healthcare workers with deep marks on their face from the masks because they were pulling mm-hmm. them so tight to ensure they would actually fit their face. That's routine across health systems around the world. And uh, an organization that I really admire, Women in Global Health, put out a report recently where they interviewed healthcare workers from all around the world about this question of equipment in hospitals. And the problem was universal. And Mm. it was in Malawi, and it was in the UK, and it was in the US, and it was in Norway and Italy. And yeah, so... It is a problem when women don't have power and control, uh, are not in leadership in a sector. It leads to things like that. And I don't even think that it's done out of malice. It's just done out of sheer obliviousness. You know, mm-hmm, the, the mm-hmm. leadership is not even thinking about women. Right. Yeah, they're not trying to pick on them particularly. They just don't figure that women are, are here, you know, in the workplace, everywhere. Well, for any entrepreneur that's listening, this is a good opportunity for innovation, (laughs) creating female uh, garb and PPE equipment. So let's jump in and and now focus on the work that you're doing and your passion and your mission uh, and what you'd like to accomplish ultimately through your company. I mean, I'm still a a one-woman show at this point, working with a number of consultants. Mm -hmm. The idea is to really 
pick of all the things I've done over my career, you know, leading a, a nonprofit, managing fairly large staffs, making grants, doing frontline advocacy. What is ultimately the, the aspect of what I've done up till now, you know, after almost 30 years in the women's movement that I feel uh, really brings me the most joy at this point in my career mm -hmm. and, and that I feel is still a big gap. And I thought feminist communications can, continues to be a gap. There's not enough that's being done to promote the work of incredible feminists around the world. There are some voices that we hear regularly, uh, you know, the four or five feminists that the press goes to regularly, and they're wonderful people, and they're, some of them are, are elders and, you know, are greatly respected in the feminist movement, but, but there's so much more going on. So I thought, you know, I can do something about that. I can create a platform where I'm going to write about the work that's being done in ways that are, I think, engaging for non-expert audiences, and then also communicate through podcasting, which is soon to come, by doing live interviews, just as we're doing now, to bring those voices to people who are interested and, and want to know more. So that's the idea. And of course, how do I pay for this? Hopefully, uh, when I do podcasting, I'll find some sponsors that are interested in this. But I'm also creating a line of merchandise, feminist merchandise, with you know, with a little bit of a cheeky side. You know, feminism makes us smarter itself is a bit of a, a mm -hmm. cheeky name for the organization. And you know, hopefully, by selling some cool products, I can at least pay for for myself and and continue doing this for a good long time. You had mentioned that the younger generation plays probably a very large role in the evolution of the movement and the transformation of the movement, really. Yes. And I'm wondering how you might be considering engaging that audience with the work that you're doing, who perhaps aren't feminists themselves yet and really able to have their own platform and their own work, but are really interested in supporting others. Have you considered that through your company and your work? Yes. I mean, that's partly why I've really focused on making sure that what I'm doing is accessible. You know, it's not insider talk. I mean, because, you know, when we get together amongst feminists, it can get pretty wonky. And, you know, there's a lot of big words thrown around that might be a turnoff. So wanting to be approachable so that people who don't feel they know all the nuances of the work can learn without mm -hmm. feeling embarrassed. And I've done this through mentorship also of, of young women who reach out to me. So, for example, you know, often we see donors um, offering money to young activists and, and setting up competitions, you know. Uh, send us your ideas and we'll pick the best five ideas and each of you will get, you know, a grant, etc. And I've opined lately, you know, I've, I've put out some thought pieces about that and saying, you know, it's not good to pit uh, young groups against each other. What I wish people would yes. do is ask people to maybe create a, a coalition or a consortium so that they can all work together and they can receive the money together rather than being pitted against each other because the problems we're facing uh, as feminists, whether it's, you know, uh, attacks on abortion rights in this country or violence against women and girls or, you know, early enforced marriage or unequal pay for work of equal value, it, it requires many people. 
to work together. It requires big coalitions of activists and corporations and others who are interested to work together. So I often find that the model of you know competition uh, for grants uh, to be wrong. And and I've talked about this with young feminists who've said to me, "Oh, I've never thought about this." You know, now that I read your piece, I'm thinking, "Huh? Yeah, maybe that is wrong." You know, maybe we need to rethink the way in which money is given to the sector. So, but they wouldn't have known this you know, otherwise, and it would have been easy to make them feel embarrassed for not having thought of that. And I don't want that to be the approach. So I'm trying to speak uh, in a in a way that is approachable and that is engaging and that where people feel they can ask questions and and engage the conversation at whichever level they come into it. Plus, you know, the cool merchandise and the fun graphics and, you know, and also a very diverse group of young women are represented in what I do. I don't want to just speak to young white women, American young white women. I want to have on the platform young women from all over the world, you know, uh, young African activists who are so fabulous and, and I love their work so much. So to really create that sense of solidarity worldwide amongst young feminists and young would-be feminists. Let's shift gears for a moment. It was interesting that you talked about the competition piece, because uh, amongst entrepreneurs, women entrepreneurs, one of my pet peeves is I'm not a big advocate of pitch nights and demo days, not because I think there's anything wrong with honing your presentation skills no. mm-hmm. and and the preparation that goes into those events is always you know, good and has benefit, but it is incredibly time consuming and the amount of money you typically raise oftentimes doesn't really make a difference between a company making it or breaking it. And it becomes more spectacle and showcase and entertainment than having a lasting, I think, benefit to all the founders. And we're always looking for that one great founder and everybody else goes home. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about um, the the theme of this show, which is startup hacks, how to save time, money, and gain a competitive edge while bootstrapping your business. And I typically interview people at a variety of stages in in the formation of their company and development of their company, whether young or more mature. And at the stage that you're in, is there, you know, one or two or three things that you would say has been really critical for you to use and to harness to be able to successfully kind of bootstrap your business to this point? Yes. I mean, there's two things that I'm learning because I typically work with large teams. You know, I used to have staff. Yeah, <laughs> like of course. 30 to 50 people working, yeah. you know, together in, in concerts. So now it's, it's a very different experience to be a founder in a one-woman company. What I find is that I've had to take the time to seek help and to work with the consultants or the vendors that you know I'm working with and really explain my vision and all that. You know how we say often uh, founders are too busy to get help, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've had to combat that, you know, stop, make sure I take that this is going to take time to find the right vendor or the right consultant and really make sure we're all in sync. They're not experts in feminist movement. So I'm going to need to uh, talk them through it and really stopping and making time for that so that I can leverage myself. So that's one thing. And the second thing is networking. And this I was advised by another 
uh, founder who has done various startups, she says, Francoise, meet new people every week. And at first it seemed a lot, right? <laughs> like, my mm -hmm. God, you know, and I haven't not necessarily met someone new every week, but I've really amped up my networking, asking for meetings. And it's been, you know, Zoom meetings during this pandemic, but I've started now also in person. And it's been amazing because almost everyone has said, oh, I can introduce you to some someone. Oh, I know a great producer for your podcast, or I've got a great graphic artist in, you know, Poland who, you know, you might want to tap and so on. So I'm really pushing myself out to do this more systematically. When you're in a, an existing organization and you're giving away grants, people tend to come to you. In this case, I'm the one having to really push myself out. But it's it's actually bearing fruit. It's really fun, also exciting, because I'm meeting all kinds of fabulous people I wouldn't have talked to otherwise. I'm really branching out into outside my usual circles, and it's really exciting. Well, and, and that's really at the heart of feminism, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Right, yeah, yeah exactly. The sisterhood. <laughs> yeah, the sisterhood and the networking, belief in self, all of that community, incredibly, incredibly important. So we are almost at the end of our time, unfortunately, and I was wondering if you might be able to share, um, Francois, some information about how our listeners could get in touch with you or learn more about the work that you're doing. Yes. So I have a website. It's fmus.org. And there you can sign up for the newsletter, which comes out every month, and the digest, where I suggest some readings and other materials that people might be interested in. There's also blogs there uh, and articles I've published elsewhere that are also on this platform. So I encourage you to go there and look out for the soon-to-come podcasts as well. Um, Wonderful. Thank uh, you. Yeah. I, I hope to see all of your <laughs> listeners join, uh, join me on this adventure. Well, good luck. We're all rooting for you and we'll definitely have you back on the show. Thank you. For all our listeners, thank you again and tune in next week for more Startup Hacks. We have another great show you won't want to miss on the secret female founder strategies that will save you time and money when building your business. This podcast is brought to you by We Global Studios, the first startup innovation studio and digital do-it-yourself startup platform for women entrepreneurs around the world. For more information on our guests, this podcast, and many other female founder programs, please visit weglobalstudios.com. I'm your host, Fernanda Kirapina, and we will see you next week. Yeah.